The Dodgers are ready to kick off now. They've just scored. Ace Parker did it. Jock Sutherland's boys lead the Giants seven to nothing. Here's the whistle. Merrill Condit comes up. He boots it. It's a long one down to around the three-yard line. Ward Cup takes it. He's cutting up to his left. He's over the 10. Nice block there by Lehman's. Cup still going. He's up to the 25. And now he's hit and hit hard about the 27-yard line. Bruiser Kennard made the tackle. We interrupt this broadcast to bring you this important bulletin from the United Press. Flash, Washington. The White House announces Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. Stay tuned to WOR for further developments, which will be broadcast immediately as received. Pearl Harbor took place, and right after that, the Navy opened up the apprenticeship branch to blacks for the first time. And so we joined by the hundreds. I believe, I believe, Uncle Sam can use me. My name is Albert Williams, Jr. I listed in the Navy. I was young, and back then, there wasn't any job so available for us young black men at that time. And but when, when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, I guess we felt much patriotic to our country, because this is our country, too. And we are, uh, quite a few of us, volunteer for the Navy. My name is Robert Routh, Jr. I was 17 years old and had just completed the eighth grade, and I thought my enlistment would help to make the country a better place for us Negroes. We didn't use the term uh, blacks in those days. Now he said he needed me. I know he'll send me back home someday, I know. Hey, boy. My name is Joseph R. Randolph. Small, senior. I was drafted by the Navy. I was drafted by the government, I should say. And uh, when I reported for duty, I was put in the Navy. I was drafted. I was working at this uh, shipyard, and I refused to let them get me another deferment. So I wanted to go into service anyway. I wanted to see some parts of the world. Oh, my name is Percy Robinson. I was drafted. And uh, when we came out of the boot training, which was from Great Lakes, most of us, a lot of us, wanted to go overseas and wanted to shoot and get into combat. Well, airplanes flying across the land Everybody fine but a Negro like me, Uncle Sam says. Your place is on the ground. When I fly my airplanes, don't want no Negro round. The same thing for the Navy when ships go to sea. All they got is a mess boy's job for me, Uncle Sam says. Keep on your apron, son. You know I ain't gonna let you shoot my big Navy gun. We was uh, told that we would be stationed on ships. So we visited ourselves at sea. I did because we, we was trained, we was trained as sailors. I was trained as a gunner's mate, but when, when they shipped us out of Great Lakes, Navy trained, we went on, our, our first stop was Post Chicago, ammunition dump. 
When I first got to Port Chicago, oh, dumpy looking place, way back out there in the boondocks, and you was kind of disappointed to, to see such a little dumpy looking place at that time because uh, I really wanted to go out on the ship. But uh, they had a lot of ammunition stored there, though. As the war in the Pacific increased in tempo, the Port Chicago Naval Magazine became the largest and busiest on the West Coast. Each day, trains of high explosives arrived in the classification yards. Here in the magazine area, safety precautions were rigidly followed at all times. Oh, man, I tell you. I don't know. It made it made you kind of nervous. You 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 always was uneasy about handling all that ammunition, uh, bombs, torpedoes, whatever. We sent everything out of this from thirty thirty uh, rifle cottages all the way up to two thousand pound blockbusters. We call them. The first time I saw any ammunition was when. We were called out of the barracks and lined up and marched. Marched to the dock. Our specific jobs were explained, and we took it from there as best we could. My job basically was to load ammunition with the crew which worked in the hole of the ship. You be down in the hole. Here come them big bombs and things coming down the the rampway they had built. But uh, sometimes they let it come down too fast. And they hit together, and they made a loud noise. You hear this all night long. Boom, 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 boom. And that would almost give you a heart attack. Yeah, you would almost have a heart attack. And so we used to ask them sometimes, say, is it any danger this ammunition explode? They say, oh, no, don't worry about it. Say, it's not live. Say, they don't have no detonators in them. We were told that it wasn't dangerous. We had no knowledge whatsoever of ammunition. And we just took the words of those that said it wasn't dangerous. We was not trained to load ammunition. We would take ammunition, we'd take a crowbar. When we had to go so high, we'd take that crowbar and push that ammunition up there because they told us it would not explode because it didn't have no detonator in it. We believe that. Got my long government letters, my time to go. When I got to the army, found the same old Jim Crow, Uncle Sam says. Two camps were black and white. But when trouble starts, we'll all be in that same big fight. All of the loaded crews were black. There were no white loaded crews. You didn't have a lot of white people that you saw. We only had basically one officer, and he would be the only person white. Well, you know, the white officers didn't have much to uh, do with us no more and to stand around and supervise and see that we uh, 
load that ammunition. It was pressure. We was told that so much we had to be dead that night. We had to do this so much. It was a rush, rush. And the division commanders push the petty officers to push the men to load as much as they could, as fast as they could. But we knew they were betting $100 or so that my division will put on more ammunition than your division. Each one would put up money that their division would outload the other one for those particular shifts or that particular day. They had day lotteries, week, and a whole ship lottery. Frequently, the urgent need for ammunition forced the depot to load two ships at the same time at the same pier. So it was on the night of July 17, 1944. The Quinault Victory and the E.A. Bryan were moored at the Naval Magazine, Port Chicago. Sixteen cars of ammunition and bombs were spotted on the pier beside the Quinault Victory as the ship rigged to load. Bryan had been loading day and night for more than three days. Three and a half million pounds of explosives were aboard or waiting nearby on the pier. Everything was normal until 1019. It was a Monday, a hot July day, and for some reason the day was kind of a, a day that I felt a great foreboding, and, and I don't know why. The lights were out at 10 o'clock. So when the lights went out at 10 o'clock, we were all returned to our bunks. I had uh, pimples, you know, still being a teenager. So nightly I went, would go in and tidy myself up and put on Noxzema and got back to my locker, put my gear away, said my prayers and leaped up. I had a top rack. I leaped up in the rack and here comes the voice over the intercom system again. Lights out, quiet about the deck. I'm laying there with my hands behind my ear, looking out the sky. And at that time, I guess a few minutes after the lights went out, the sky lit up, and it's just like the sun rose. Everything was bright. You could see all the buildings for a second. Shortly after that, here comes the second explosion, filling the sky with all kinds of uh, lights and colors, like at the 4th of July celebration. And then next came the uh, noise, the booming. Now we knew something was wrong. Then came the concussion. The concussion blew in the wind all over my body. And my reflexes was I put my arms up in front of my eyes. My left arm got mutilated, face, head, neck, shoulders, and body. Got mutilated. That was the first explosion. The second was just a few seconds afterwards. That lifted me out of the bunk, threw me on the floor. All hell broke loose. There was just a lot of uh, confusion because glass was everywhere. Men were, you know, just in fear, and some had ran all out in their bare feet and shorts, and it was just bedlam. And a few seconds later, the second floor started to come down. You could hear the wood cracking and stuff. You can hear the people now screaming and yelling, get out of the barracks, it's coming down. So I myself scuffle, crawl out, and took off for the outside. And when there were no other explosions, then I crawled out. 
But then I noticed that I didn't, couldn't see clearly, and, I, and that's when I first realized then that I was hurt. And I called to my buddy, hey, Moss, come and get me and take me to the sick bay. And then somebody else hollered, well, the sick bay is, is, has been blown up. When I got outside, there were a few people outside yelling for volunteers to go down to the docks. I ran up to a guy, said, hey, I want to get volunteer." He asked me, he said, did you see Percy? get out of the barracks. Well, he didn't recognize me. He was my squad leader because my face was so mutilated full of blood and cuts. So I said, I'm Percy. I want to go down to the docks. So no, you can't go. You have to go to the hospital to get sold up. The left eye was lacerated so badly that that was removed that night. And then the right eye was lacerated. And so I, consequently, the right eye eventually I lost the sight in that, too, so I, that was the beginning of the end and caused me to be uh, a blind person. This is Douglas Edwards reporting that General Montgomery's British and Canadians have begun a powerful new offensive at the eastern end of the Normandy Line. In the Pacific War, American battleships, cruisers, and destroyers shelled Guam Island on Sunday for the second straight day. Here at home, officials say that 337 persons are known dead or missing and presumed dead, more than 300 others injured as the result of last night's explosion of two ammunition ships at Port Chicago and Upper San Francisco Bay. And now General Electric takes you to... First thing I thought, same thing, Pearl Harbor again, you know. So that's what it was like, you know, just like somebody dropped bombs over the whole thing. It didn't look like it was an explosion wonder from the ships, you know. It looked like a plane come down and just, just bombarded the place. In the waterfront barracks and administration area, buildings crumpled like cardboard, roofs blown off, walls gone. In the vicinity of the loading piers, total destruction. Both ships, broken, twisted hulks. That was a shocking thing, to see those ships tore up and, and seeing I was standing watch over all those uh, dead bodies. I had to stand watch over that. That was my duty. And you couldn't tell one from the others. Meantime, the court of inquiry was collecting testimony and exhibits. Experts in all fields were called in to study the area. The cause of the explosion could not be fixed with certainty, but it was suspected that a depth charge was accidentally detonated. I knew what it was because we, ex we were expecting it all the time. We worked with that, that in mind, that one day that stuff, stuff would blow up. We felt like this. We was getting a raw deal because we was the one that was doing the dirty work. We was the one that's fooling with the ammunition. So why shouldn't we have a leave absent to get away to get your nerves settled. But that didn't happen. Then the next day we was all sent to, uh, I think it was Mare Island. It was another station, you know, same as ours, but it's down the further down the river, I call it the river. But anyway, we was sent there for housing. And the hospital was in Mare Island. I think I was in the hospital maybe a week. And I think the day after I returned to Mouthfield, we were ordered to go to work, and I still was bandaged up, face, arms. My stitches were still in everything. 
So we were lined up outside the barracks to go to work. They hadn't told us what we had to do yet. But then they said, forward march. I was marching on the outside. I, I, I called cadence. Something like this. Who lift, who lift, left, right, left, left, two, three, four, left, right, left. And uh, I believe it was Lieutenant DeLuca. Said column left. And when he said column left, everybody stopped. Because column left meant we were going to the docks. And the docks meant loading ammunition. They told us we had, they had a ship that had to be loaded, you know. They gave us an ultimatum, would you load ammunition? That's the ultimatum we had. And I told myself, I say, I am absolutely afraid, which I were. I'm afraid to load ammunition. You step over there then. Then he called another one of my, I think he told them to ask them the same thing. You step over there. And when the end of the day was over, I think just about all of us had stepped over there, you know. Then the Admiral came down and explained to us what our responsibilities were. He told us, he said, well, one thing I want to tell you, that you could be charged with mutiny if you don't go back to work. And he explained at that time, if we refused to go back to work, uh, he could have a shot. That was the cue. When he said you could be shot, then the fellas went to mumbling. You know, a lot of people, they're afraid to die. And from my upbringing, my mother taught me that if a white man threatened to hang you, he would do it at his first legal chance. And she told me about the Klan, and she was brought up in Mississippi. So I believed that they had a legal chance to shoot us. So I was afraid. So I said, well, I'm not going to give him a chance to shoot me. I'll go back to work. But then 50 of us decided we wasn't going to go back to work. If we were going to get shot, we just had to shoot us because we wasn't going to go back and load no more ammunition. That's when we were arrested. I would say arrested because we was all shipped to, uh, I think it was Treasure Island. We was at the stockade. Then we was found out that we was charged with mutiny. We didn't commit no mutiny. We didn't take over no ship. We didn't take over a base. We had no weapons. We didn't even have a pen. We only refused to go back to work. Now, how could that be mutiny? I didn't know anything about mutiny. I just knew that I didn't want to work under the same conditions that I did work under and advance the chance of the same thing happening again. Well, the mutiny trial, <laughs> it's just like it's, it's just like a thing that is it's cut and dry. We all sitting over here, all the white officers over here. We weren't allowed to say anything but whatever they would ask us. They would call us one by one up there and testify, and everybody had almost the same story. Maybe that's why you thought we was 
But that's, that's the story we told him. I told him the same thing I told him then that I told him when I was on the docks, that I was afraid of it. And I was afraid. You didn't know what was going to happen. You were wondering what would happen. Was it going to have a shot or what? Put it this way. If my mother would have took all six of our kids in the room together, mom and dad, we all here did something. We know we was going to get punished. That's what the atmosphere was there. No matter what you say, you're going to get this whipping. Whether you're right or wrong, somebody did it, you're going to get whooped by it. The verdict was, was guilty. The verdict was guilty as charged. I expected it from the way this, the, the trial went. Of course, the, the length of the sentence was a surprise. The lowest sentence in there, I think, was eight years. I had 12 years, and some had 16. Well, I don't know. I don't know whether I just, I don't even remember crying behind it. I know I did after I got into prison for a while. But I just seemed like it was something that was going to happen then after the trial. You know, after you sit in the trial for a few days and you you see what was going down. 7 p.m. Eastern Wartime. Bob Trout reporting. The Japanese have accepted our terms fully. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the end of the Second World War. The United Nations are united and are victorious. Well, the war ended after they had suspended our sentence. They had to release us. We had to get our discharge. My discharge from the Navy prevented me from receiving jobs that I would have received as a civilian. It, it, it branded me as a person incapable of following orders. I used to couldn't talk about it because it would hurt. It was hurt inside. You didn't want your friends to know that you was in the service and you had been charged with mutiny. You didn't want people to think that you, uh, you know, you didn't like your country or something, that you do something like that. Just on this country we knew about. Not even with the fellows I worked with. I didn't talk with it with my wife or children. Every time I would bring it up or even think about it, it looked like I got a, a hateful feeling in me, you know, and it was just about tearing me apart. I just hate it the race and the hate was building up it stayed with me you know the hate stayed with me you know hate can really destroy a person I could have been a better father I believe if I hadn't had that hate I wouldn't I wouldn't uh, abuse it or nothing uh, but I just things that I didn't talk about things I held in things I think I could have did better. We can figure we was a hero because we stood up for our right. We stood up because we knew that we did not commit mutiny. I think it was right. I don't know how rogue it is, but it was right. I was fighting for 
something. And if you would ask me to put a name on it, I don't know. But things were not right. And it was my desire to make things right. I have never felt ashamed of the decisions that I made. I did what I thought was best, and I did it in the best way I knew how. Yep. Long ways back. Don't it seem like it's been 50 years, and it still hangs over us at 50 years. If you ask me, I think democracy is fine. I mean democracy without the color line, Uncle Sam says. We'll live the American way. Let's get together and kill Jim Crow today. 